1: Hi, this is Anne Philippi, founder and host of The New Health Cup Show. I'd like to invite you to change your mind about psychedelics, because I believe we are entering a new era of health, bodies, and brains. And for this, we need new tools, experts, and thought leaders, which you can meet here at The New Health Cup Show. Please enjoy. Hi, and welcome to the last episode of the New Heads Cup Show in 2023, which has been quite a year, I have to say. So today's topic might seem a little harsh as the last topic around Christmas, because it is about PTSD, post-traumatic stress syndrome, and how it could be healed with MDMA therapy or Ibogaine soon. But the world should be informed what PTSD looks like, especially in the current state we live in. Civilians and veterans are suffering. We are exposed to a whole new situation of trauma and war. Even just watching what is happening on social media can cause re-traumatization in many people, even if you don't live in the country where the actual war is happening. As heavy as this topic is, I firmly believe the knowledge around healing modalities should be out there. And with this episode, I'm trying my best to do this. I'm happy I had the chance to talk to real experts on this topic, whose lives were heavily affected by PTSD and also the healing of such. My first guest is Amber Capone, an amazing lady I keep seeing on all these psychedelic conferences. Amber is the co-founder and executive director of VETS. Veterans Exploring Treatment Solutions, a pioneering organization providing resources, research and advocacy for U.S. special operations veterans seeking psychedelic-assisted therapies abroad. Amber has served as the engine behind the dynamic success of the VETS mission since its inception in 2019. She was raising funds to support hundreds of veterans, spouses and Gold Star spouses, while as spearheading research and legisl- legislative initiatives at both the state and federal levels. A natural-born, complex problem solver, Amber is committed to fighting as hard for other veterans and their families as she did for her own following a tumultuous return to civilian life after her husband Marcus' 13-year career as U.S. Navy SEAL. My second guest is Jonathan M. Lubaki, U.S. Army sergeant, and he is the founder of the Lubaki Strategic Direction, Veterans and Governmental Affairs Liaison for Maps and VP-, VP Communications at Apollo Pact. He's a 12-year retiree of the U.S. Army forces, serving in both the Marine Corps and the Army. He's been a freelance journalist since 2014. And since 2016 he's been a strategic communications and governmental affairs consultant advocating for psychedelic medicine and veterans. Jonathan returned from a deployment to Iraq in 2006. Shortly after returning he was diagnosed with post-traumatic stress disorder, aka PTSD, and traumatic brain injury. While battling PTSD, enduring multiple forms of treatment and taking dozens of pills per day to manage symptoms. He attempted to take his life five times while recovering from the fifth attempt in a hospital. He was instructed to Google MDMA PTSD. Beginning exactly eight years of being released from active duty from Iraq, Jonathan began MDMA assisted therapy in a MAPS phase two study and completed the protocol in early 2015. As of November 22nd in 2022, he's been healed of PTSD as long as he had PTSD. Jonathan talks about these things also, for example, on TV shows like The Goop Show or Netflix. And I was really impressed by his openness around him trying to get some serious help. John was also appointed to the National Veterans Director for the Rand Paul for President campaign, realizing the potential of psychedelic medicine to heal his fellow veterans and the millions of Americans suffering as he once did. He has been involved in media, politics, and government affairs with a focus on the Department of Defense, Department of Veterans Affairs, and media since receiving MDMA therapy. This episode is a very, very important one. And if you have a family member, doesn't have to be a veteran, I have somebody who's been in combat with the symptoms of PTSD. This is something you can actually send them to. You can listen to them together with them and find out where you could eventually receive that kind of therapy. Please enjoy the show, Amber and Jonathan. So today we have Amber Capone on the show, who was the last time there, I think, in the pandemic when everybody was still at home and going up and down from the top floor to the Facebook floor, I remember. And Jonathan Lubecki, uh, one of the first veterans that I heard about looking into psychedelic therapy in the context of MAPS. And also for those who know the show, um, I think it was the Google Labs or the Google Lab. Yeah, you were also interviewed by those people for, you know, working on PTSD with the support of psychedelics. So, but since you are running a super interesting organization now for a while that is growing very fast, I would like to start with a question. So what has happened this year in 2023 with bats?
2: Well, Anne, thank you so much for having me back on your podcast. I always love seeing you at uh, industry events and I always love the opportunity to chat with you on your podcast. So thank you. Um, oh, this has been a banner year for vets. Uh, we we have provided grants to more veterans this year than ever before. So we're going to close the year out at over 230 grants to veterans and or their spouses and Gold Star spouses. Uh, our Target for the year was 225. So we were able to surpass that. Um, We have really developed our programming to offer a very robust uh, set of wraparound support services once someone has done their psychedelic journey abroad. And then um, we've added to the team of support for those individuals as well. So our programs are thriving. Um, The Stanford study that we were working on. Since 2019, which was paused in 2020 due to COVID, we were able to pick it up and right at the end of 2021 and get it finished in 2022. Um, it could be published by the end of this year. If not, it will be very early 2024. Um, that data is just going to blow people's minds. It's incredible. And um, from an advocacy standpoint, I'd really love... You know, to to turn it over to John, because from an advocacy standpoint, we've had our biggest year yet as well, um, particularly in regards to federal legislation. So it's, I think 2024 is poised to be even bigger than 2023, mm-hmm. <laughs> but uh, the, the VETS mission is on fire. And that actually segues into another big event in 2023, which was our annual gala this mm-hmm. year, it was uh, called the Torchbearer Ball. The idea for that was that, you know, we're really uh, breaking ground and the veterans are leading the charge and just furthering this mission, the the, the psychedelic renaissance overall, and um, bringing hope back, you know, into a community that has experienced so much darkness. So the, the gala was incredible. We had 600 guests we honored Dr. Andrew Huberman, representative oh, Dan. Shaw, okay. <laughs> Yeah.
1: And, uh, Dr. Nolan <laughs> Williams from Stanford. It was a wonderful night. Amazing. So John, yeah, maybe you want to jump in here and then talk a little bit about your department, which is. So, so we'll yeah.
0: start with the easy one, which was, uh, that actually I was not a part of, but Amber and, and Marcus, uh, went and talked at the Kentucky Ibogaine roundtable. Uh, there was a big hearing in Kentucky because they've got this money from, from the uh, opiate settlement and they're looking on, on using Ibogaine to treat opiate use disorder. And Amber and Marcus, uh, were, were very instrumental in, in speaking there and in sharing their message. Um, and we do continue to work on state level issues and, and look at state bills as they come out. Um, I'm actually in North Carolina right now, because I'm going to be meeting with someone down here about a North Carolina segment, so. Um, But on the federal level, it's been going like gangbusters. Uh, one of the things that I think nobody really anticipated um, was that Republicans would be the ones leading the charge on psychedelics for mental health. And Democrats either, you know, timidly supporting it, staying silent, or in some cases, actively opposing it um so it's definitely been interesting but we've hit a ton of milestones there is now a u.s house of representatives uh psychedelic therapies psychedelic assisted therapies caucus um focusing on medicinal use it's uh co-chaired by lou korea and jack bergman so this isn't like firebrands or unpopular people um to be honest i i, I think most people if you said Congressman Correa or Bergman may not know who they are, like in, in many states. So so it's set up as a Noah's Ark style, which means if if a Republican wants to join, they need to bring a Democrat. If a Democrat wants to join, they need to find a Republican. Because this has to be bipartisan. And it has been, for the most part, very bipartisan. It's one of probably the only subjects in Washington, D.C. where you can get agreement from both sides. Um, and, and we've gotten to a point where the agreement, everybody believes this, that, this, that this, you know, there's something to both. How we go forward is what the debate is, which is good. We're no longer debating, does this work? We're debating how to make this work. Um, But in in that light, you had a psychedelic House Veterans Affairs Committee psychedelics roundtable where VA, myself, a few other people spoke with uh, Congressman Luttrell, Miller Meeks. I believe uh, Congressman Bergman was there. And it was more of a briefing session than a hearing. The VA then went and did a state of the art meeting out in Denver, Colorado, where they met for a few days to discuss basically what is the VA's next steps. They, they've come to the conclusion they need to do something and they're working on figuring out what that something is. We should have those results, hopefully January, February timeframe. But following that, uh, I was on a podcast, uh, New Horizons in Health with Dr. Elmhall, the Undersecretary for Health for the VA. So he runs all of the Veterans Health Administration. With Also with uh, Josh Woolley from UCSF and San Francisco VA, as well as also Weakers, Director of Research and Development for something, 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 something. Um, And talking about psychedelics, not as, hey, this is this crazy thing, but in a very matter-of-fact manner, how it can help veterans. Some concerns that the VA has. One of their big concerns is that people see, hey, MDMA-assisted therapy if psilocybin-assisted therapy works, I can just go see my friend Bob and get a pill and take it and everything will be fine. And this is where the therapeutic component, the the follow-on integration that VETS does, as well as other entities is so critically important. But following that, the House Veterans Affairs Subcommittee on Health actually held the first ever psychedelic uh, hearing was on emerging therapies to prevent veteran suicide, I spoke as well as uh, Juliana Mercer, who's a Marine veteran. You had a researcher from NYU, a researcher from Rand Corp, uh, but you also had three VA representatives, including Dr. Clancy, who's the Assistant Undersecretary of Health. So basically, making sure this happens falls on her more than Dr. Elman Hall. Um. And one of the biggest things to come out of that hearing was the VA finally admitting in testimony to Congress, 7 not once, not twice, but seven times, that there is no statutory or regulatory bar to the VA conducting any of this research. So there's no, the, the only thing stopping them is money and wealth. There, there's no law that has to be passed to mm-hmm. say the VA can do this research. And part of that's because... While there are significant barriers to research in the civilian side, when the government wants to research something and the government has to get permission from the government, the government says yes. <laughs> so yeah. it, it just, it's the way government works. And then probably the biggest accomplishment uh, we found out just the other day, the Mike Day Psychedelic Therapies Act, which is a standalone bill with 14 co sponsors bipartisan consent co-sponsors, People like Dan Crenshaw and AOC signing onto the same bill is kind of a fun thing. But that has been working through and was included as an amendment in the National Defense Authorization Act, as well as $15 million to fund that research in the Defense Appropriations Act. So the Mike Day amendment made it not only into the House version, because it made it into the House version last year, but it got stripped out in conference when they. Met with the Senate because the Senate bill and the House bill were different, so they have to come together. And, and the NDAA, National Defense Authorization Act, is a gigantic 3,000-page must-pass legislation because if it doesn't, the United States doesn't have a military anymore. So this is more than just a psychedelics bill, but the amendment was included, and it made it through conference. So this will require the Department of Defense to fund and conduct research using active duty troops. To deter for PTSD and TBI to determine, you know, if it works, if it's beneficial, if they can return to duty and then report back to Congress. And it, they will have to sign it with, or they will have to commence within 180 days of Joe Biden signing it into law. Okay. And there's kind of a big irony here that Joe Biden happens to be the president that will sign this because. Mm. He, throughout his career, he has a very lengthy career in Washington, D.C., and one of the things that he has been personally very much against is MDMA. Um, He's the author of The Rave Act. He was on the Justice Committee when it was made illegal. He has had a one-man mission against MDMA. And as a matter of fact, he stood on the Senate floor saying how evil and horrible MDMA was, and six days later voted to send me to Iraq. So the idea that he will now hopefully be signing legislation into law authorizing human clinical trials of MDMA within the the Department of Defense is groundbreaking. So it's been a very busy year. I know I've talked for for a long, long bit, but there's been a lot going (laughs) on this year. Very,
1: very substantial what's happening. And I think it's so interesting to see how this is in America already moving into government and it's becoming also because of the bipartisan thing it's becoming such a part of you know like society and I feel like just for most people in Europe I think and especially German Bundeswehr for example this seems to be a hundred light years away from any kind of treatment like this and um, somebody who was in the or is in the Bundeswehr told me if he would go ahead and do like an MDMA treatment for his PTSD um, and somebody would find out he would be kicked out um, for doing drugs kind of. So, um, and how do you you think this could be, I mean, now you're in the Ukraine on a regular basis. We can talk about this in a second. Uh, How do you think, and both of you, could this be accelerated, especially in the current climate of two new wars in, in Europe.
0: So some, some interesting things, if, if we're going to bring um, you know, global conflict to it. Um, Ukraine is very interested in psychedelic assisted therapy. Um, both on, on a military from military commanders to, to members of parliament. Um, they're actually for the past year I started going over there originally to take a break. Because D.C. is very stressful. And although we had a lot of wins, for example, the Mike Day Act took three years. It's just a very slow process. Um, so I wanted to go over and help people and get a little bit of you know, institute gratification. And I ended up working on psychedelic policy within Ukraine as well. Certain European countries, um, you know, Ukraine, because they're fighting a war and they're losing people to suicide and PTSD that can't fight on the lines on top of all the physical injuries. Um, but there's other countries that are, are somewhat more open, the Czech Republic being one of them. Um, there's ongoing trials there, as well as in the Netherlands, I believe. Mm-hmm. Although it could be Belgium. next step, i saw. sorry. Um, but I think one of the more interesting factors is the more recent conflict, not Ukraine, but Israel-Palestine for two reasons. One, there is published research on... How psychedelics can be used to heal people who have suffered, you know, trauma either from either Palestinians who have suffered Israeli trauma or Israelis who have suffered Palestinian trauma to help heal those wounds and move forward with some form of peace. But also, uh, maps Israel has been very involved in doing MDMA-assisted therapy along with the Israeli military. So Israel has been very a lot farther forward than even the U S when it comes to the idea of psychedelic assisted therapy. Um, but I do think that when, you know, one of the biggest things about the Mike day act is, and and if DOD, which has been resisting this, um, and they've been drug kicking and screaming to, to do this, if they do these trials and come back and say, Hey, okay, it works and X number of people return to duty, we're going to continue to follow them. That sends a very... out not just within the United States, to the VA, to health insurance companies, to Medicare, the states for Medicaid, because if people can't afford these treatments, they won't have access either. So they need to be covered by health insurance and all these other things. DOD, who doesn't want to do it, coming out and saying it works, is verification for everyone from a legitimate source that they that they trust in that but it also sends messages to other governments around the world uh, to include the EU on approval going forward because the hope isn't just approval in the United States you know, the hope is that these treatments and therapies are available worldwide
1: yeah and, then, and Amber I, I want to quickly touch on, on your story also because like when you We talked about this in the podcast, or you talk about this in other podcasts too. Is that you were basically, let's say, the civilian affected by a person coming back from combat with severe PTSD? And I feel like it's great that you, the two of you, are really on on this episode because I feel like this is something that is now increasingly happening that civilian families have the situation that their mostly husbands or men or dads come back from combat or are in a constant combat situation now and need to deal with their kind of probably very fast acting PTSD coming out of a certain situation, either in Ukraine or in Israel or in in Palestine. So what I would really think it's great if you could talk a little bit about how your story was back then when Marcus came back from Iraq and how do you had, how you had to deal with this and how do you even realize what was going on with him?
2: Yeah. Marcus did serve one tour in Iraq, maybe two. Most of his combat was in Afghanistan. And Mm -hmm. I think for anyone who's seen combat, there's an automatic assumption that it is PTSD. I never thought Marcus had PTSD. He would tell you that PTSD is, in his book, a four-letter word. He doesn't like the diagnosis. But, you know, that's not to say that there wasn't trauma endured because of his time in combat. I think if you look at a photo of a soldier of any decade pre and post-combat, you can see in their eyes that their spirit is just crushed. War has been around as long as man has roamed the earth. However, it's an unnatural state. And so it certainly does impact someone's psyche. Um, But what I was seeing with Marcus, you know, yeah, he was disconnected. He was um, not himself. I felt like he was a stranger, but he really loved his job and he almost preferred to be deployed. So, you know, the PTSD diagnosis never really resonated with me. However, I was seeing... um, severe cognitive issues that seem to be beyond his control. And my personal belief is there's a lot of misdiagnosis happening uh, in the United States, in particular within the special operations community, that you know, their, their challenges are solely attributed to PTSD. Mind you, you know, they have um, very extensive histories with subconcussive and concussive Blows to the head, blasts, weapons fire. You know, they, they train, their training cycles are a little bit more intense. Like it's just, it's a different, it's a different um, set of circumstances. And so when Marcus was struggling, like at his very worst, and he was trying all of the PTSD tech, techniques, like to get ahead of this the talk therapy, the antidepressants, which prompted other prescriptions, nothing was working. And for someone who is geared to achieve goals, and he's doing everything <clears throat> that he's being told to do, and he cannot achieve the goal, it was very disheartening for him. And I could tell that he was growing more and more disconnected and desperate really by the day. Um he was also, he's, he's also been very selfless ever since I've known him. And I knew that he was struggling with thoughts of being a burden to me Mm -hmm. and the kids. And he was thinking that, you know, if he wasn't here, we could move on with our lives. And he had identified himself as a problem. And so I knew that he was struggling with thoughts of suicide. He was also struggling with not wanting to live in this sort of state for another 40 years. I and mean, he was 40 years old at the time, maybe not even. I mean, it, he was young. And um, he just he would say to me, I can't live half my life like this. It's miserable. I wouldn't wish this on anyone. And I was desperate to help him. And so, you know, yes, the talk therapy and prescriptions had been part of his life, but we pivoted into brain clinics and diagnostics, which were really great diagnostically, didn't really move the needle. I, I, I was pretty convinced that it was a, you know, as much or more of a brain issue than a, a psychological issue. And I didn't know what Ibogaine would do, you know, as I was just desperate to help him. I knew time was running out and I knew one friend who had done Ibogaine. I didn't know. I mean, I, I had the same connotation as many with psychedelics, like, Oh, well, the weird, you know, like Drugs, weird, hippie, counterculture, not for us. However, you get so desperate, you're willing to try anything. And so I approached him with the idea. It took him about a year to commit. When he finally went to Mexico and did the treatment, it was like our entire life just leveled out overnight. It was, he was back. Like he was, he was the person that I remember meeting before he picked up all of this other crap in his 13 years as a SEAL. And, um, I just, he, he turned to me the first time I saw him at the center and he said, this is exactly what his friends and former teammates needed. And so the following month, a donor, our first donor reached out and said, I want to give to a veteran organization, but I don't want to like, you know, I don't want to go give to like salaries. I want to know that it's going to someone. And Marcus said, well, last month, like I had a life-saving treatment and I have a friend who could really use the same. And she's like, I'm all in. And when he had the same experience, she actually gave enough so we could send like five of our friends. They all had the same experience. And so it was like, okay, maybe there's something here. Like most uh exciting to me was the return of his neurological functioning. Mm-hmm. He was stabilized from an emotional place, but he was also like firing, his brain was firing again. And I thought everyone would want to know about this. So I reached out to pathologists, researchers, key stakeholders in our own community, anyone and everyone that I thought would be excited. Everyone had the same sort of like, ooh, what's that? Mm-hmm. Ooh, Mexico? Mm-hmm. Psychedelics? Like, no, that's weird. Um, until I finally was connected with Dr. Nolan Williams at Stanford. I told him my hypothesis uh, my housewife hypothesis of like this is a brain thing and this is this is potentially like really helped it and he believed what i had to say and said well, let's do a study on it so that launched the stanford study which will be published imminently and i think it will go to prove that a lot of this is a traumatic brain injury thing and not you know just a ptsd thing and Ibogaine in particular has a lot of feeling. That's a very long way of answering the question of, I don't know, yes, Marcus is traumatized all the way back to his childhood. Yes, war was hard on both of us. And yes, Ibogaine provided relief on a psychological level, on a, a spiritual level,
0: and on a physiological level. It was absolutely profound. Well, and one of the things, it, it, that we've had a major problem with that a lot of this research is, is hopefully going to help is a lot of the symptoms or, of PTSD are the exact same for TBI, but they are different. What is TBI? Um, just, and,
1: just to uh,
0: traumatic brain injury. Okay, TBI. Um, okay, mm-hmm. which is a overarching term for a lot of different types of injuries, whether from direct impacts to the head, blast injuries, you know. Um, both within armor and outside of armor, because those are like being blown up in a armored vehicle, it reverberates inside, which can cause some different types of brain trauma versus like breaching, which is what Marcus did. Um, but it's an overarching term, but also one of the things with any brain trauma, it's made worse with stress. Well, if you have any emotional stress, whether that be PTSD or adjustment, you know, issues or depression or what have you, that increases the stress on the body, which makes the TBI worse. So for me, it's been weird to figure out what is a TBI issue that has not fixed itself um, and, and what was a PTSD issue. So for example, going to sleep, actually falling asleep is a TBI issue. It's a brain trauma issue. Staying asleep and having and not having and, and like not having nightmares and things like that was a PTSD thing, which has been gone. But one of the things that Amber touched on that I have personally believed is a major driver in the veteran suicide epidemic is that veterans do start to see themselves as a burden, as a problem. And we've been trained when you have problems, you solve them. And one of, the pro- one of the solutions to problems in a veteran's toolkit, especially a combat veteran, is to kill the problem. And when you view yourself as the problem, killing yourself becomes a solution that's in your toolbox that is not irrational. And not all civilians have that kind of thought process. Um, so that's one of the reasons why I believe veterans have a higher incidence of, of, of suicide and suicide attempts than the general population.
1: I mean, maybe you guys can explain how this works. Let's say you're a veteran, you're, you heard about vets and you had a, maybe listen to a podcast, which a lot of people heard about psychedelics in the, the recent years, mo- mostly Joe Rogan talking about it and then finding somebody who brought them somewhere to do this. So how, how would this work? So somebody would approach you and would actually try to go somewhere to do the treatment. And then maybe you can just explain the process a little bit how this works.
2: Yeah, so Betts was born out of that initial uh, commitment from Marcus and me. help our friends it became their friends their friends friends it became Mm -hmm. all of naval special warfare not just seals but support personnel we've now branched out to all four branches of um the united states military well i mean i guess technically there's five or six if you count national guard and space force but we've got the four big ones army navy marine corps uh and air force and we do have a focus on special operations however Every single veteran that's ever served has, they were advocating for them every time we're on Capitol Hill. We want to see access to these therapies opened up for everyone, not just veterans, even all Americans. Mm -hmm. Like the the healing potential is so incredible. Um, Veterans are just leading the charge in, you know, creating the awareness and the safe place for lawmakers to join the fight. We have to turn away 80 to 90% of the special operations applications that we receive. That's how many we get. So to open it up to like all military would be completely overwhelming. We have a very small staff. But for veterans who are interested in coming through our program, our current model has been set up that they would apply online. They would be chosen based on a number of different things, number of years served, number of combat deployments, written appeal, quality of life, uh, commitment to the process, et cetera. And once someone is accepted into the program, they're in for life. So we provide all the preparation support. We provide a subsidy for them to travel internationally to go through one of these retreats. And we provide all of the back end integration support when they return home. And it never ends. So we have offerings six days a week. We have spouse offerings. The spouse role is absolutely critical. Mm-hmm. And, um, and we we have ways in which they can belong to a community again and give back again by supporting other veterans who are coming through the program. So it's really special. Now, will that always be the best model? I don't know because the scaling need is so great. We've got to find a way to help more people, and we're actively pursuing that for 2024 and beyond.
0: And and one other thing to add, not just so so that's it does well. Most of what they focus on is ibogaine. They actually do do work on six different compounds: Um, ketamine, MDMA, psilocybin. Ayahuasca, Ibogaine, 5-MeO-DMT. I think I got those all ketamine. right. Amber can correct me.
2: Ketamine. We do have we oh. funding for ketamine in the United States.
0: Oh, that's right. Yeah. As things become FDA approved, some of those things may change because uh, MAPS-PBC filed uh, day before yesterday mm-hmm. with the FDA for approval of MDMA-assisted therapy uh, in the United States. So it is now in the FDA's hands It goes FDA, once FDA approves it, then it goes to DEA and DEA is required within 90 days to reschedule it and then it can actually be prescribed. So we're looking at the first compound being approved next year. Mm -hmm. So one of the big federal fights in 2024 is going to be to make sure that this is in the formulary for the VA, that the VA is doing the research, the implementation research and rolling this out because, you know, Vets is an amazing organization. That's why I love working for them. But also, they have finite resources, and they can only ha- issue X, ex- you know, so many grants a year. This year was was the biggest year with, I believe, 230 star. There are millions of people who need access, and the only way to ensure that all veterans have access to the high quality care that me and Amber are talking about, whether it be MDMA, ibogaine, ketamine. Is through the VA and, and, and through you know FDA approval and all of these things. Okay, so it, it's 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 filling a gap until we can get the FDA approved approval, so you can get health insurance, Medicare, Medicaid, VA, etc. Because I'd like for people to be able to go to a clinic down the street instead of having to go to Mexico or Costa Rica. Totally, and we,
2: I think we've always known that too. Is like this is a stopgap. This is Mm. creating a breach for a much, much larger push. And by creating the awareness, like the number one talking point, and there are plenty of other organizations using this as their number one talking point too, but that is actually doing the work. We're actually providing the funds, raising the funds, providing the support, welcoming, you know, anywhere from one to five or sometimes more veterans into the program every single week. Uh, the, the number one talking point has been veterans who are willing to die for this nation have to leave it in order to find meaningful care. Hundreds. You know, when you add in the grassroots portion of the vet's mission, and then when we actually became a 501c3 following the suicide of one of our close friends, um, you know, we're, we're right around a thousand veterans that we've provided full subsidy for everything. I mean, they are talking millions of dollars that we have put right back in the hands of veterans to go have these experiences. And when lawmakers hear that, it's staggering. We are the most advanced medical system in the world. And our veterans are going across the Southern border to a tiny clinic in Mexico and having their, their lives completely transformed.
0: And I think there's also a bigger message in all of this which is, and it goes back to when Amber was talking about Marcus's story. And I know I felt the same way. I don't want to live the rest of my life like this because we were all told that there was no solution, that that this is just how it is. And this is where when you hear Marcus's story, you hear my story, you hear other stories of of grantees and others that have done this. People start to realize that I don't have to live my life like this for forever. There is a light at the end of the tunnel. And one of the good things with veterans and military is we will go through the worst shit in the world as long as we know we get to go home. You know, we will go slog it out in jungles, in mud, in whatever. We will go live for years in, in horrible conditions as long as we know we get to go home. And with PTSD and, and um, TBI and some of these other things, we've been telling people, you don't. This is how it is for forever. So simply seeing people who are healed and how well this works gives hope. Mm-hmm. Because if you have hope, even one tiny ounce of hope, you're not going to take your life. Because mm-hmm. each and every time I tried to, it's because I lost hope. And I think the bigger message here is there is help. It may not be right this second. You may have to wait in line. It may take some time, but there is hope. And, and you said it. I think you
1: both of you said it in other interviews. That, but then you go home with your PTSD, and you only thing is you want to go back because you cannot be anymore in a non-traumatized surrounding, basically. So, and I mean, there are many movies like The Hurt Locker, who's a really good movie describing. Somebody going back home and then can't even tolerate a supermarket because he just you know the PTSD is kicking in, and um, so I want to come back a little bit. And Amber, also what you said, the spouse is really let's say an important person in the whole healing process. If it's if it's about veterans mainly, but I, I think we also entering now in a new phase of a a much bigger amount of people probably suffering from maybe not from these brain injuries but from a new sometimes it feels like a new version of PTSD that you could just acquire while looking at social media every morning with beheaded babies and Gaza Strip uh, information or Israel army What or, or, or like the whole this this wave that happened where these young people got attacked so I mean it feels like and this is really conversations I'm having with a lot of people here in Europe that just looking at these kind of let's call it content or just having family kind of being in this situation or have been having been in this situation and not even touching by yourself kind of a battleground or have to go somewhere but still people start to talk about how they start to experience let's say almost like um, PTSD because of the situation the world is in right now so this is in my perception, and because of this conversation, it's kind of a next level of treatment that seems to be ready to go. So, how, how does this work around? How, how do you feel about this, especially with these? Uh, let's say, yeah, let like the last year when when the Ukraine war started, and now Israel and the Palestine. How does this affect you in a way of think making the thing even bigger and communicating also how the families or how this, yeah, the, the the families of veterans is also kind of ready to be healed, not only the veteran, him, him or herself, basically, right? I mean, that's, that must be also something that you guys think about.
2: Yeah, well, I think that there's some beautiful um, healing in and of itself that out of so much war and carnage and destruction following 9-11, the post-9-11 era veterans is really the one you know, the, the ones who carried the weight of the two decade war on their backs and they're carrying this new war, but the new war has hope and light and love. And, you know, and the ripple out effect I think is really profound. Our goal of helping Marcus's closest friends, like I said, became their friends and has rippled out and out and out and out. And even though not all veterans are able to receive funding from vets. Maybe they're receiving hope from vets. And whenever they're properly supported in a psychedelic journey of their own choosing um, and they come back and do the integration work and make the lifestyle shifts necessary, that ripples out within their family within their community, within generations. And so change is not going to happen overnight. But I think that this new paradigm, this rumbling that is happening in the field of mental health is far-reaching in terms of implications for future success and restoration. And it starts with a torchbearer willing to do the work And a fight. And, you know, I look at the power of one life. And of course, in this case, you know, I think of Marcus and how close he was to ending his life. I think of John and how close he was to ending his life. And you've got two torchbearers now for the entire veteran community, creating more torchbearers and every single light that is lit is bringing hope into a very dark world. So I don't know how it's all going to play out, but I do know that something very special is happening. And I think it could reach around the globe.
0: I absolutely think so. And it's one of those things, there, there's an old proverb that the man who plants the date tree never tastes the fruit. And, and that's kind of how I view this. I, I, I fight for, you know, my son actually has PTSD. And and ho- hopefully he'll be doing MDMA assisted therapy once it's, it's FDA approved. But I think of his great grand I think of his grandkids, and I think of the world that I hope will exist for them because it's more than just veterans. PTSD and mental health issues affect so many families. Uh, just this morning, I was having a conversation um, with with a, a veteran. He's, he's perfectly fine, but his, his wife went through a lot of trauma growing up and has severe PTSD, and I was talking with him because he has a hard time understanding PTSD. It, it, mental health affects so many families, not just veterans, but civilians. And you know, I'm, I'm a bit fortunate when I had my PTSD because it was from combat. I could avoid combat-like things. I think about what about the victims of military sexual trauma or rape victims, where their trigger happens when they fall in love with someone too, and it's t- it's very very difficult to avoid. So my hope is eventually that we that all this research is completed, we know what these compounds do, we know the best thing for the best thing, and in 50 years, you know, the child who who suffers from from you know abuse will be able to heal from that when they're pulled out of that abuse. You know, whatever trauma happens can be healed, so those people will eventually become congressmen and senators and presidents and members of parliament and and, and the leaders of this world. And and my hope is that that they can then make decisions based more on the facts on the ground than some ancient or emotional trauma or because... They were abused as a child, or you know, one of the weird, weird questions that that I, I continually ask myself is: MDMA was invented by Merck Pharmaceutical in like nineteen seventeen or something. Twelve. What would have happened if a corporal Adolf Hitler, when he crawled out of the oh, trenches in World War One, did MDMA <laughs> assisted the therapy? <laughs> you know, or, yeah. or did ibogaine therapy? Yeah, this be great. is how you can yeah. change the world going forward, but I believe this will fundamentally change humanity the way things like antibiotics and, and nuclear power and, and these, these groundbreaking things. And the funny part is, it all stems from ancient indigenous culture.
1: I mean, I, just, I did my first round of um, MDMA therapy last two weeks ago. And I think one of the biggest changes is that I realized my brain is not me. So, and if it's becoming really hard for me, I say, this is okay, brain. This is what you think, but I don't think this. Is this kind of how this, this is a very simple explanation, but I thought it, I want to ask you how you felt about this. Is this like you have a conversation with your traumatized brain and tell this brain to fuck
0: off, basically? Well, a to little an bit. extent, a lot of it. <laughs> so for me part of my trauma was in relation to circumstances I was put into that I blamed myself for. Okay. And so it it allowed me a different perspective and a more objective look at circumstances. Um, and also realizing, I mean, I always kind of knew when my brain was doing haywire stuff, I just couldn't control it. Um, But with the MDMA uh, therapy, I was able to kind of, as you said, tell my brain, hey, that's irrational. Cut it the fuck out. Um, but also, it was, it was being able to go back to traumatic events and understand, for example, that the abuse I suffered from, from my mother wasn't because I was a bad person mm-hmm. uh, and things like this. So it was a matter of being able to see those same memories in a different way with a different perspective, which helped me to not allow those things to bother me.
1: And Amber, maybe you can talk about Ibogaine, because that's something that in I think in America is already also a little more in the news and discussed. But in Europe, I think in this psychedelic, newly psychedelic context, it's not really so common yet. So maybe you can talk a little bit how this actually works because it's a very strong experience you're going to have, right?
2: Yeah. And I'll preface it by saying that I have never done Ibogaine. Uh, However, I've been very entrenched in the Ibogaine space and world and for years and I've seen hundreds of outcomes, I would say 90 plus percent of, uh, that's funding goes towards Ibogaine. It is the protocol that Marcus did in 2017. And, um, pretty much everyone says, well, i want to do what, what Marcus did. I want to go where Marcus went. And you know, there's no, no, uh, consideration for anything else. Um, Ibogaine is really interesting in, in reference to, you know, it's like hallucinogenic properties. It's, it's completely different than a traditional psychedelic. It is an onerogen and it creates an awakened dream state. So people are put back into very vivid memories of traumatizing experiences that they've lived through in the past and they, you know, have to work through them. Or they see things from a different perspective. Like Marcus, for example, had a very, very overbearing father. And even though it wasn't an experience where he did revisit some experiences with him, but it was more or less just seeing his father through different eyes and realizing that his father was bullied and didn't know how to you know, necessarily be a father. It was like this whole perspective perception shift that was only available to him in this state. So when he takes or anyone takes their eye shades off, they can communicate. They know where they're at. They break from the experience. But then when they put the eye shades back on, it's like it's oftentimes described as like a Rolodex of memories or a, a fast movie of someone's life. And then themes emerge. Marcus also dealt with a lot of darkness. I think that was just sort of like trapped in his soul. And he was freed from that. It was... He felt so light following his Ibogaine experience. He felt like a thousand pounds had been lifted from his soul. And um, that's oftentimes the case with VETS grant recipients. They've they've described it the exact same way.
0: Yeah, I can tell you the night after I did my my first MDMA session was the best sleep I had had in eight years. Oh, wow.
1: Okay. But, But I mean, I find it interesting that you when I saw you at at the Goop lab, which was a great show about psychedelics, but it was rather a show like, oh, those guys are going to South America and doing a little mushrooms and have a good time. And then you came on and said like, well, I tried to kill myself five times. And it was like a total, I mean, it was amazing. Of course you said it, but so I wonder, so how, how did you feel about being part, of a show that is, I mean, I love Goop, I mean, there's no question, but it's rather coming from a, let's say, lifestyle background that uh, you know, work on a little bit of trauma and then you find you're in LA, you can have great food and you live very healthy, so everything's going to be fine. And, but you were telling about, like, putting on your uniform on, on July 4th, 4th of July, um, when when you heard, like, you know, just... Fireworks going up. So, and and I will never forget this because it's exact, exactly what my grandfather told me on New Year's. He would never go out. He would just stay in the basement until it was over because he couldn't take it. And I never I had no explanation. So, um, can you? Is that okay for you to talk about this time in your life before you, before you got into this therapy and how you felt on a daily basis?
0: I mean, one, on a daily basis, I suffered from, from crippling depression. And that was in things that startle a normal person, where like, they're okay in a minute or two, I, I would be that way for weeks. A lot of intrusive thoughts. I would be reminded of things if I saw people in Arabic clothing, I'd, I'd be hypervigilant and start having panic attacks, you know. And it was a weird thing. If I saw people in traditional Muslim garb wearing black socks with sandals, black socks with sandals was a weird big trigger for me. In a backpack, I'd I'd lose. And also, the base I was on got mortared something like 6,000 times I was told while I was there. So it was constantly under fire. So especially things like fireworks and stuff like that. And I would usually spend 4th of July at the VFW because it was a double cinder block wall and would be far enough away that I could muffle most of the sounds. And I was surrounded by veterans who were basically hiding and drinking there for the same reason. But I mean, there were good days and there were bad days. But one of the things is, even on the good days, I didn't want to live. I just didn't want to ex- want to exist. And I thought I was a burden to everybody, and in a lot of ways I was.
1: Yeah, but maybe you. Yeah, I can't imagine, but that—that that you that, that's your perception of yourself. But if you go to Ukraine right now, which you said you go there to support, also the Ukrainian psychedelic association. So, and I remember talking, you talking on the panel at in Denver uh, with Yuri Blokhin and Olga like saying that when you go there, although you go technically into a war zone, you are not triggered or you're way less triggered than you thought you would be. So how, can you talk about this a little bit, how this works for you if you do yeah. this?
0: So, so one, before I started going down to the front lines and, and, and in the Donbass, um, I was in Kiev. And for example, last night, Kiev got hit pretty hard. So air raid sirens go off. And one of the things I learned <laughs> in Kiev is apparently everywhere in the world uses the same sound for air raid sirens, because, you know, like police sirens are different countries and stuff like this. So, so German police sirens are very different than American ones. So I assumed to be the same with air raid and it's not. But air raid sirens went off. There were explosions. I, I went out on the balcony my hotel balcony, made sure like everything was fine. Nobody was in immediate need of help. And I went back to sleep and went right back to sleep. And that's when I was like, okay. And, you know, I went and spent about two weeks down near the front lines. There's a warehouse. It's a logistics hub. I think it's, depending on where the lines are today, about 14 miles from the front lines. Um, And it's used to, for medical supplies, food, heating equipment, clothing, things like that. When I went down, there was artillery fired, there was gunshots, there was firefights. And I'll, I'll be honest, I, I'm sitting here thinking because a lot of stuff that we did was convoys and other stuff. And I'm sitting here driving down a road that's potholes from freaking, you know, artillery shells and other stuff, torn up by tanks, you know, minefields on either side. And I'm completely calm. And I'm a be- I, I noticed that I was a better soldier than I ever was in Iraq, in part because I didn't have the anxiety. Now, some of that's because I'd already been through it before. <laughs> um, but also, some of it was, I believe my emotions were rational for the moment. If only I didn't react to contact or, or didn't do what I was supposed to do, I absolutely did. I just wasn't terrified the whole time.
1: Interesting. Okay. But I mean, when you say you weren't terrified, and the thing is like, I mean, I have a really good friend who's a Serbian guy, and he's working on himself now with psychedelic therapy, and all his memories coming back from the war, and he said he was never never scared. He never experienced anxiety or threat, but even if somebody had like a knife here
0: on his head, he was like, whatever. So how, you know what I mean? I I will say a lot of the fear came from, I did a couple of convoys, not a lot of them. And being on the road with the IEDs, that was, driving was terrifying. And that was something that I noticed in Ukraine. I wasn't scared of. I mean, I was still scanning the road for IED. And there's very much minefields on both sides of the road. When you stop, you don't step off pavement in certain areas, things like that. And it's just rules you follow and you do. But I didn't have the kind of fear that at any second the road's going to blow up in front
1: of me. Interesting. Okay. But, and Amber, could you want to come back to your story also? Because I mean, once you guys started to create uh, vets and, and Marcus became better, so you, you know, your, your life started to come back or you, he came back, as you say. So, but still, like what I remember also from my last conversation, it kind of still requires kind of a, almost like a new routine in your life to implement also, let's say, um, tools. Like, I mean, I know Marcus loves Kundalini yoga, meditation in the morning. So (laughs) how does this look like for a family? So very on a very practical level.
2: Well, first of all, I will say that As I alluded to earlier, when one person in the family shifts so dynamically and dramatically, the others are forced to follow suit. That doesn't always bode well with other members of the family, especially if they're carrying trauma. So it's really important to communicate during these times. I was a thousand percent on board with Marcus. I had given him my word shortly. Well, it's actually what? got him to commit. He thought I was going to leave him. I thought he was going to die by suicide. And I came alongside him and I vowed, I will never leave your side, but you have to fight. You have to fight with me and I will fight right beside you every day for the rest of my life. And so we approached it together. That's not to say that there weren't hard days or hard times, but the hard times became a hard week. And the hard weeks became hard days and days became hours and hours became minutes. And then it shifted to the point where he was in control. He could pivot quickly Mm -hmm. or he could, he worked so hard at changing his neural pathways to not even get in those situations. So, you know, he, he didn't go on this endless loop of negativity or self-destructive, Thoughts. Um, And he did that just over time, training himself, but starting out with the basic understanding that this is normal. It is, we all have an ego that wants to protect us, it's our survival mechanism. And so identifying that and allowing that ego to be honored for what it has served in your life to this point, but also to let the ego be put away. And to work on becoming a new person without these limiting beliefs, it requires a lot of intention and a lot of repetition. So those deep rooted tracks that are in all of our minds were temporarily covered with a fresh coat of snow. And Marcus was able to work with an integration coach so that when he wanted to get back in those deep rooted tracks or straight down that mountain into the abyss, he was able to pivot, pivot, pivot. And then eventually, new tracks were created. He's still creating them. He still has bad days. He still talks to a coach. He still has my support. And we are still making progress. And I think that that is one of the biggest things that veterans, um, are learning or coming into acceptance about. like it, There's it's not a goal that's just like, oh, we achieved that. Yes, psychedelics can create a massive reset. But if you want to really maximize that window of opportunity that's created following a psychedelic experience where the ego is quieted, you really have to be intentional with creating these new thought patterns, new ways of being, new habits. The population that we're working with is very goal-oriented. And so it's like, okay, I'm feeling great. Where's my checklist? My checklist says get proper sleep, wake up early, go to the gym, eat right, be part of a community, give back, find purpose, take care of my body. And that just snowballs. It's really, it, it's a really, really special thing to see someone reclaim
0: their power. Well, and this is why integration. And the therapeutic component is so important because it's what really creates lasting change. Yes. Um, you know, I, I went through MDMA assisted therapy nine years ago. I, I talk to therapists when I need to. Um, and like going back and forth to Ukraine, when I lost both my parents, things like this, I call up a therapist. And, and one of the things that MDMA assisted therapy taught me is that therapy works. And I know that sounds crazy, but I had, you know, from the military, through fire experiences with therapists, things like that, I, I had massive issues and I just didn't think it would work. And so I never did it. Now, yeah, I'm, I'm very protective of my mental health. That doesn't mean I shy away from triggers. But if, if I know I need help, I, I make a phone call and I say, hey, I need to talk about this. And, 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 and you work through it. But it does create lasting patterns. But this, but you need integration coaches or 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 people who are specialized in this and know what they're doing, otherwise, you don't really get that lasting healing um and that's where people say, "Oh, I have to keep doing this rather than changing the actual underlying issues and changing how you are interacting with the world to make sure these things don't happen or when they do it is it you know, a months long thing. It's a minute.
2: Yeah. It's so, so true, John. And it's not a linear process. It's not like this. I think when someone has a really profound psychedelic experience and they're just blasted to the top of the mountain, they may not realize that it's their job to stay there. And staying there means putting in the work on many, many levels. And so that's, you know, back to what I was saying a minute or two ago, um, The veteran community has struggled, I think, at times with this concept of this is continual work. It's not like I can just attain the goal and be done. It's not a panacea. It does require probably the hardest work someone has ever done and there's no finish line. So this is like a lifelong pursuit of peace, Mm -hmm. inner peace. And it's like a stock, and run. it is hard work. It's up and down, up and down. But like generally, over time, trending upward, and realizing those downs are serving a purpose. Thank goodness for those downs, because in those downs, Marcus reclaimed his power, and he recognized that it was his ability and responsibility to pull himself out. And he learned the tools to do that. Sorry, John, you were saying something.
0: No, no, um, and. And it's absolutely correct. And this is why one of the things that I always say, if you're not doing the therapy and you're not doing the integration, well, you're just doing drugs. Because those are the things that actually create the change. But but
1: I mean, also, I find it so interesting that you basically, especially in, in, in this, I mean, I just did part one, but, but especially there, I realized already doing psilocybin before, but now mean that it's basically, I mean, you're a completely different person than you thought you would be. And that is then like to unpack this person and uh, that would take, of course, like longer than a couple of days. And then you have, start to have conflicts with people because you don't behave anymore the way you're supposed to behave. And I mean, it's like
0: a... I don't like saying that you're a different person. No, you don't? You get get to discover Mm -hmm. the real you. Yeah, okay, yeah, okay. And the reason... Yeah. It's true. Because saying you're a different person says that this changes you from one person to another. And I think it just heals the broken parts of you and reveals the true Mm -hmm. self.
2: I think that's exactly right, John. And I think, too, that, you know, I don't do psychedelic journeys personally. And I, I don't think that they're for everyone or necessary to attain really deep healing. I think that they're like a rocket ship to, uh, you know, a very potentially healthy, stable place uh, when given the right, you know, set setting, prep integration, sourcing, dosing, all of that. Uh, However, I think that, you know, with the right intention and approach, you can really get into finding true self without psychedelics. Psychedelics just make it a whole lot easier and a whole lot faster when you're properly supported.
0: Yeah. And and at times, it can also reduce barriers that are blocking that. One one thing I don't ever dismiss other treatments that are non psychedelic. You know, SBG works. I know a lot of people who have had success with EMDR prolonged mm-hmm. exposure therapy. And I've always thought, you know, as horrible as SSRIs are, sometimes they're needed as a crutch because and they I mean, MD- there's oh. not enough therapists trained. And they yeah. do work for some people. For some people, all they need is yoga or go to church or go to the gym. And and all of these things should be on the table. But also, I think talk therapy and and things can be used to fill the gap to keep the person... Because for me, the eight years of talk therapy I did was triage to keep me alive. And I'm glad it happened because I was able to live long enough oh, yeah. to be oh, able yeah. to do MDMA-assisted therapy. Um, And for me you know, talk therapy was never going to work. I needed that break because part of it was I had so much, I could not, so trust was a major part of my PTSD. And I had had a therapist in the past, actually a couple of therapists in the past, break confidentiality with detrimental effects to me. So I had zero trust for any therapist. Mm. And also, you know, we've all heard. Well, that's all the time yeah. we have for today. We'll take it up mm-hmm. there next week, and you never do. So, eight hours of therapy. But I, I, I honestly don't think I could have ever gotten where I was through talk therapy alone because my barriers were just too high. And this is something that that psychedelics are very good at is breaking those barriers down and allowing the therapy to actually work. And then. Like in my case, I, I don't do psychedelics all that often. Um, very rarely, as a matter of fact, and only in, in the latest And That's my personal no choice. But if I had not done the MDMA therapy, I would have never been able to pick up the phone and, and call a therapist because, hey, I just found out my mom died. Because I would have not, never had that kind of self-awareness. Mm. You know, it, it's funny because had a therapist, he's like, "You know, I genuinely care about you." And I, and my response was always the same: "Yeah, you're paid." to.
1: Oh, okay. Mm. Wow, interesting, right? Yeah, but I mean, it's like I feel also what I observed this year is that let's say people who are, especially people over forty who are, you know, have responsibilities and maybe a marriage and a tough job. So, once they started to engage in psychedelic therapy for themselves, they kind of also start to implement it in a safe way, sometimes more and more into their life, sometimes also with their partner. So, and, and sometimes I feel like, or like it's just what I saw, especially this year, that it seems to become more like something that's less crazy or dangerous, but something that you once in a while engage in together i mean not only with your partner also maybe with friends or other people and that it's becoming also something that is just being accepted again as a as a tool um that you if you can handle it if you know what to do that it's making lives easier also in a way and not necessarily i mean i know there's a, some people say well that's still doing drugs <laughs> but <laughs> but
0: <laughs> I mean, it is by def- by definition. Yeah. It, it is, but also mm-hmm. here here's part of the concerns that I have. Like like one, I'll I'll say personally, I don't think anybody should go to jail for for possession and use of personal use of substances. I think there's far better ways to handle those issues. But also, part of the concern is adult use,
1: which
0: yeah. is kind of mm-hmm. what you're talking about, spiritual use and medicinal use but three different things, three different contexts. And I think part of the problem is when you say all three are the same, it can have disastrous Mm -hmm. effects Mm -hmm. for people who have severe mental health issues. um, Some of which may be counterindicated, counterindicate the use of psychedelics like schizophrenia um, or need to be done in a different container. And, And I think the problem is, you know, I went through a four month protocol. With, with with integration therapy etc because i had severe ptsd i would had five suicide attempts etc if you just say hey i have these severe mental health conditions i can just sit with a friend and do mushrooms on a friday night and that'll yeah. fix the problem That can lead to disastrous mm-hmm. results and i think part of the issue is you know I famously said, you know, growing up in the 80s and 90s, their generation, we were taught about good drugs and bad drugs. Well, good drugs gave us the opiate epidemic and bad drugs cured my yeah. PTSD. So for me, it's more about context. If you're talking about a therapeutic context for a specific mental health condition, that should at the, the first be tr- be treated medicinally. With proper protocols, proper evaluation based on that individual, their needs, their medical history, their mental health history to ensure it's done mm. safe. If you're looking for spiritual and you're not claiming any sort of mental health benefit and your mental health is, is for the most part good, then yeah, that, that's a different story. Even, even adult use. I One of the things I find more interesting is honestly the, the conversations around microdosing. Because every like they've started doing studies and placebo controlling it, and they're not finding a difference. So, microdosing may entirely be a placebo effect, um, because most of it's based on anecdotal, yeah. you know, stories. And I always kind of have some reservations when people do put take a substance and put it, put it into their body because their friends said it would help, yeah. And, and cause I see in, in the veteran community, especially there are so many myths and rumors and misconceptions about so many different things. For example, if you say you have PTSD at the VA, they're going to take all your guns. Well, I had a, I had a diagnosis of PTSD and I owned gut. Like, so you have the same thing in, in, the psychedelic space. And some of this is because there are people who are dedicated to ensuring that this is medically available to the people who desperately need it. And then there's people who just want to end the drug war by any means necessary. And, you know, part of the problem of doing this in the wrong container is where you have things such as a pilot who did mushrooms yeah. and, and tried to crash an airplane. You had a soldier who did mushrooms and ended up shooting at a campsite. You've, you've got these things, and yes, 10,000 people can do mushrooms on a given night and have no issues. It's the one dude who strips naked and run da- runs down the freeway that makes it a national news story. But irresponsible use is irresponsible use, even if it, you know, is psychedelics. And, and this is where I'm for responsible use, and, and that is a different answer for every human. Because it depends on their personal mental health history, mm-hmm. their medical history, et cetera. Because, frankly, like, do I believe you're going to overdose on a, at an ayahuasca ceremony? No, I don't. Do I think if it's not properly done when you get up to use the bathroom, you could be unsteady on your feet, fall and crack your head open on a table? And then the headline is, a woman dies mm-hmm. at a ayahuasca retreat? Yeah, I could very much mm-hmm. see that happening. And this is where, those kinds of things affect and make it harder for the federal wins that we had this year. Yeah. Um, because those questions are asked. Yeah, it's true.
1: Before before we go, I mean, um, just what is, your, what is your biggest challenge right now for the next year with VETS? And how could people support you that are listening to this podcast? Uh,
2: the challenge is always scalability. And that's everything from donor, you know, fundraising to how do we help more veterans, how do we create more impact? We're a small but mighty team, and I think we're creating um massive waves. I wonder how much more we could do if we were able to backfill our team a bit. I'm, you know, as the leader of the organization, always trying to assess burnout. I think everyone is very purpose filled and passion driven, but that can only last so long. So, mm-hmm. you know, from a scalability standpoint, the dollars make everything happen. And that to me is always, we're always up against extinction as a nonprofit. Um, we've been blessed with incredible donors. And so uh, we're going to be around for 2024. Um, But, you know, creating more impact legislatively is certainly moving to the front seat. It was more in the back seat historically up until now. But with the uh, introduction of our policy and advocacy team, which consists of John here on the call with us and our policy director, Kersheed. Koja, who's an attorney uh, who's been in the drug policy reform space for a really, really long time, over a decade. Uh, and then our research manager, Dylan Peters, we've got big plans for 2024. One of our driving, uh, I would say, convictions is not allowing veterans to be exploited or tokenized in this space. So we're going to be moving more on that. We're going to be creating um awareness and we'll, we'll, we'll be rolling something out in 2024, but veterans are called to give back and they're leading the charge. However, there are uh, other, you know, they're commonly exploited. And so we definitely want to put an end to that and allow them to Mm -hmm. serve in ways that feel
0: meaningful to them and not like they're being used. Interesting. Okay. Yeah, I'll second that, you know, funding is always an issue. And one of the things is, you know, there's a lot of veterans that that we we hopefully next year will be bringing to Capitol Hill to share their individual stories. All that, you know, all that takes travel expenses and all these things. and And one of the other big challenges when it comes to federal policy is what's the next thing as we're looking at, you know, FDA approval of MDMA next year, or psilocybin hopefully two years after that. You know, what, what are the technical things that will block scalability That, that in, in trying to anticipate, as well as things like one of the advantages with the Mike Day Act is not only is it going to pass and help in the immediate, but by the time the DOD research is done, we can use that to get Medicaid approval, which is in all 50 states. You also have things on the state level where some of these drugs are illegal under state law, even if they're approved by the FDA. So those laws need to be changed um, and brought into alignment. So a lot of it's trying to sit down and, you know, making some, de- changing the schedule on something and turning it into a medicine that has been seen as this, this bogeyman for a long time. It, it, it involves more laws than you would think, even on, on the smallest levels. And a lot of this is anticipating, okay, it's going to take two to three years to pass a bill. So where are we going to be at in three years? And where are we going to need to be at in five years? And coming up with that strategy and plan so that you, you keep the momentum going. Um, because MDMA is the first, but it won't be the last. All of these things need to be researched for all the different mental health things. One of the things I really want to see in the future is, you know, different mental health conditions will react mm-hmm. different. So is psilocybin better for yeah. OCD and MDMA better for PTSD and ibogaine for opiate use disorder? And we have all this data. And you can also look at things like, hey, you should do ibogaine and five meo DMT, you know, because that has a better Better thing, you know. It's all these questions that still need to be answered, and this is where, like I said, the, the, the strides we're making this year are, are. It's we're not at the top of the mountain. We just hit the first base camp.
1: What way to say it? Great. So, I mean, um, yeah. So, if anybody listens to this, we the info is in the show notes. Please reach out to these guys and um, give them as much as possible. <laughs> I really like to support you in this as much as possible too. So um, we're actually having a a panel at the German conference DLD in Munich about war trauma and MDMA with uh, Yuri Glockin, Rachel Yehuda and um, Leo Rosemann in January. When is that? Uh, January 6th. No, January 11th. So if you, sh- for any, somehow should be magically in Munich at that time.
0: Send me the information. I will definitely see if I can make it. i that. send you
1: the yeah. info. And both of you, I mean, we, I'm sure we can figure it out because uh, fortunately it's a great conference and they understood because of the situation, they understood when I proposed the panel to them and then um, they even got Rachel to come. So if you can make it, it would be amazing. We can do two panels. <laughs>
0: <Maybe>. <laughs> so, I'll be on a panel with Rachel. I have no issues with no, no, Rachel. No, no, no. Like, she's, she's a wonderful yeah. woman who's, who's, who's done well, no, a lot I mean, of What stuff. I mean, it,
1: that the topic is so big that you could easily do two or three panels and um, it's just... Yeah. Oh, he's good. Well, no, I sent you both the info and thank you so much. It was super interesting. Um, okay, cool. Have a good day.
2: Thank
1: you, Anne. Great to see you. Thanks, John. Hey, and thank you for listening to this episode. Since I have you here, I just wanted to remind you, please follow us on Instagram, The New Health Club, on X, The New Health CL1, on LinkedIn, and please subscribe to our newsletter on Substack. I'm very happy if you are a returning listener and customer, and fan of the New Hearts Club.